Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipleship relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today, we are in week one of Path 8, the book of Hebrews, and my name is Jamie Trussell, and we're joined today by Elder and Pastor Steve Winstead. All right, Steve, so it's a pretty heavy task uh, this semester, going through the book of Hebrews as a Gospel Journey, uh, as a gospel journey group, and it might serve our people well to just do a little bit of introduction work on the book of Hebrews. And so hard to date it because we don't know exactly who wrote it, but it's uh, important to note that even though we don't know the human author, it is included in the scripture. So we don't have any reason to doubt its authority or trustworthiness. Yeah. Yeah. I think as far as not having a human author, we trust that that's exactly what God wanted us to know is that he wrote it and we really don't need to go beyond that. You know, a lot of books we'll dig into and we'll be looking at the author and what they've experienced. And we'll even see, like in so many of Paul's writings, his personal experience bleed through his writing. Uh, for some reason, God didn't want us to have us in this book. So we just trust that uh, date. We really don't know, but most do believe it's before the temple destruction because of the way it speaks of the temple. So we can place it probably before 70 AD, but that's what God gives us for this book. Yeah, and you could look into, I've often said, I think Hebrews is the best commentary on the Old Testament, and it's a great New Testament book on the Old Testament, and you could pick out a lot of themes. One of the major themes that runs through the book is this author is exhorting uh, what seems to be a primarily Jewish background audience to not leave uh, following Christ and return to Judaism. And that they could be tempted to do that for one of several reasons, but one that he seems to bring up is there's there's to some degree persecution happening. Uh, uh, their faith is costing them something. Uh, they're encountering difficulty because of wanting to follow Jesus. And over and over again, with pretty strong language, the author of Hebrews is exhorting the people, don't don't turn away from Christ and turn back to Judaism. Yeah, he's definitely dealing with. Um you know, what people call the issue of apostasy, to to believe and then turn back from the faith. So that's a big, big theme throughout the book. He's writing, obviously, you said to the to a Jewish audience, which we see that throughout this book. If, if you're a lover of the Old Testament, and that's a, a book that you, you just love journeying through the Old Testament, the richness starts to come through in Hebrews because it's the most Old Testament laden book. Uh, of all the epistles. So it's really fun to read if you're an Old Testament lover. At the same time, there's complexities and things that if you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament, that you have to wrestle with more, you have to think through more, and you even have to pull back and see what what's the author addressing here that the audience may need to hear. And that's why we bring like guys like you in to help teach us all <laughs> exactly what that stuff means. Um, hey, so... Uh, one of the ways we've constructed this field guide for the gospel journey is uh, to address what's called the warning passages up front. They have five primary warning passages in, in Hebrews, and we deal with them up front so as to not take time every single time they pop up. And this brings up the age-old debate that, uh, look, we're not here to solve this morning, uh, but just the question of can you lose salvation Uh and so just to make a few comments on that before we get to the text itself, uh, when, I, when I think about that question and interact with people on that question, I, I like to begin just by saying, I think the way we even phrase the question is incorrect. So if, can I lose my salvation? Well, the answer to that is always no. You can't like, whoops, where did it go? You know, I lost it. I fumbled it away along the way. Somebody took it from me. I can't find it. 
Uh, I think a better way of phrasing that is, can someone willfully and consciously forfeit their salvation? So is the book saying they've truly tasted life in Christ and then consciously and willfully said, forget it, I'm done with it? And was that person ever truly redeemed or not? That's that's what I think is more a more accurate way of phrasing the question when people are thinking through that issue. And, and, and look, wonderful godly people land on multiple sides of that deal. All we want to do is say uh, that's the issue I think people are wrestling with. Uh, it's easy to read the passages and I think fall on the side of saying, man, that really sounds like that person is redeemed and they willfully forfeited their salvation. I think it's easy to read the passage and saying, man, they showed some evidence of having known the Lord, but they didn't truly know him because the fruit of perseverance uh, didn't last in their life, which shows that they never actually knew the Lord anyways. And so that I think is at least uh, a highlight of of the, the complexity at hand with the passages. Would you add anything to that? No, I, I think that issue is complex. And I think as far as People want to answer the, can you lose your salvation or not? Personally, I think when a person is a new creation, they're a new creation, they can't go back to being an old creation. Uh, It gets into an issue of conversion. Have they truly converted? And there can be people who learn the church language, involved in a church culture for many years, and even show some signs of fruitfulness based on the fact that they're speaking truth. Uh, It's not them. It's the fact that they're speaking truth and maybe not even fully trusting in it themselves. And they can even have fruitful ministry. And then you'll see later that they deny Christ and aren't walking with the Lord. If a person is walking with the Lord, it seems like they will eventually, if they are truly converted, they will come back around. So sometimes all we can deal with on a personal level is what do we see in a person right now? Based on the evidence you're giving me, I believe you're a redeemed person as far as I can tell, and I'm going to treat you that way. And based on the evidence you're giving me right now, seems like at one point you may have professed, right now you're saying you don't. So I've got to interact with you on that. And I think that's the practical side of it. No, and I think that's a great point because even if, uh, say in this scenario, you uh, profess faith for 20 years and then for the next 20 years deny Christ, if I'm interacting with you in those second 20 years, it actually doesn't matter if you ever knew him once before or not, because like you said, I'm interacting with Steve, who's in a period of denying Jesus. I need to interact with you as someone who is actively denying Jesus, not trying to decode, well, did you know him once before? Because uh, the evidence is, in that moment, you don't know him. And and we have no way on the human side of things of ultimately knowing someone's eternal destination. Uh, we can assess fruit. We can say, like you just said, it seems to me you don't evidence this or that. But ultimately, God knows the heart. But like you said, uh, uh, someone who knows the Lord, repentance will be there eventually. And that's what Scripture seems to speak to that. A degree of perseverance will be there uh, yeah. till the end. Scripture seems to think of that. And look, this is hard in our in our Southern uh, cultural Christian climate of even knowing how to help people parse these things. And, and, and uh, so, yeah, difficult. Uh, we would just encourage your groups not to get super sidetracked on this point. At the end of the day, as Steve just referenced, we want to interact with people and what they are professing to believe in real time, not trying to decode what might have been true of their past. Probably the best way to minister to someone um, in, in that moment. Okay, that said, uh, so intro, word on the warning patch. Let's move to week one, uh, which are going to be chapters one and two. In the book of Hebrews, and just to get us started, Steve, let me read these first two verses because I think they're pivotal for laying out 
the the supremacy really of Jesus Christ as the central figure of this book and how he's supreme to any other revelation God had brought for that. So he says, uh, verse 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In his last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So from this point forward, these first three chapters are really an argument on supremacy. Uh, supremacy to angels, supremacy to Moses, supremacy to the law. Uh, but God seems to be really concerned right now with this idea of finality. Jesus Christ was his final and full revelation. Uh, it, so the prophets were shadows. The Old Testament was shadows. Moses was a shadow. But he has spoken definitively uh, through Christ and in Christ, whom it says he appointed to be the heir of all things, whom he created all things through. Yeah. I mean, this opening right there, we go back to the Old Testament, the prophets. So if you're a Jewish um, person reading this, which is who it's written to, the prophets are what your life is built upon. So you're always hearkening back to the fathers, to the prophets. And here in these last days, he's pointing to Christ. And he points to the fact that Christ created all things. So right here, for a Jewish-minded person, he starts off these first three verses and gets right up in some very uncomfortable areas for a Jewish person because to say that Christ was there and created all things. And we see that, you know, hearkening back to John chapter one, we see that in uh, Colossians chapter one seventeen that all things are held together by Christ, that he, he, he's the creator. He, he holds things together. Uh, and here for a Jewish person, instantly Christ has been placed in the spot of God. So that's a, a big uh, idea for a Jewish person. And really, it's a hard one because for many of them, it'd be blasphemous. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they would view it. So there's no, st- they're not stepping back from what the gospel teaches and what they believe. They step right into it right at the beginning of the book. That's exactly right. And part of the appeal of the author is, is this nonsensical idea that if Jesus really is su- uh, uh, supreme to everything, why would you leave following him to return to a uh, inferior mode of worship in the sense that it was incomplete. Like it was pointing to Jesus and yet you would leave Jesus to go back to the very thing that pointed towards him. And so he's trying to help the people see that it's not even a rational step to walk away from Christ and return to your old system of belief. But if we just say with that to now, I mean, just candidly, I think we're all tempted to, to depart from following Jesus and return to old modes of operation, and it might not be back to Old Testament Judaism, but I can return back to uh, uh, self-centeredness. I can return back to believing I know better than God does. I can return to a legalistic system, believe I can earn God's affection. And so it may be good for, for our gospel journey groups to pause and think, hey, okay, this may not be our context, but in some way, all of us are tempted to depart from following uh, the creator king christ and returning to old modes uh, of worship and living mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a big thing throughout the book is there's no other place to go sort of this idea that christ is sufficient there's nowhere else to go you, you can't place your hope in anything else yet every one of us while we can profess that's true and believe in our hearts and minds that's true we all know because our flesh uh, rears its head over and over again every day that in uh, be it subtle ways or be it very sometimes very rebellious overt ways we continually go back to other things 
thinking that they're going to provide something that really That's only right. Christ can provide. That's right. And now we won't obviously move this slowly through the rest of the passage, but let's unpack verse three, and then we can talk about uh, the point he makes about Christ's superiority to angels uh, uh, rather quickly. But verse three is one of the most poignant, uh, I, I think, impactful verses as it relates to the person of Christ that we have in the entire New Testament. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, there's no argument here that at least the Bible believes Jesus was God. Wasn't mm-hmm. something similar to God. Uh, wasn't some, uh, uh, you know, divinely inspired man, but he was God himself. And look at this next description. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so in that very sentence alone, we get Jesus is God. So to leave Christ is to leave God himself. Uh, And we get the work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Uh, This idea of sitting down, which I want you to unpack for us. See, that's that's Hebrew idea, uh, a language for finality. Is it not this idea that he has sat down? Look, this is God. He created all things. He redeemed us. Uh, His work of the cross, his life, death, resurrection, all of that culminates in this idea that he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, uh, the seating down is an idea of it's finished. Uh, What he said on the cross, the the work of redemption, paying the price for sins, it's finished. And he's now um, set down because Christ has the victory. So the victory is his, and that's one of the great tensions we live in. Uh, we live with a Christ who is victorious. He is one. We know the end game, yet we don't live in a world where, where the full implications of that victory have been realized. We're still waiting for that. We're in this tension of this already, not yet. Christ has already won the victory. He's already set down. That's already occurred. But yet, where we're living, we don't see that in the full until he comes back, and this verse here, verse 3, if there were ever a verse that would make a Jewish person just want to shout blasphemy, this is it. Because right here in your face, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Um, he's the radiance of the glory of God. So as you said, to deny Christ is to deny God. So for a Jewish person, you've instantly put them on the what you believe about God and what you believe about Christ are intimately connected mm, that's a good point and i love like and, and back to your point about the finality of his sitting down like there's great news in that because there's nothing we can add to his work we, we don't have to achieve or accomplish anything to be in god's presence we just have to repent and trust christ and all of that work gets credited to us on his behalf and so there's a there's a sense here we can all sit down and take a deep breath and go, okay, the work that had to be done for my redemption is finished. Yeah. And yet that's the hardest thing I think for people to do for myself or any of us, because everything in our entire life is geared the opposite way. If you want to be successful in any way in this life, well, as a kid, you're taught to work hard, get good grades. You want to be a good athlete, train hard. You want to be good at your job, work hard. So everything in us is about accomplishment, achievement, working, earning it. And yet salvation is so counter to everything in this world because it's like you do nothing. And that's really hard for us to deal with because with nothing else in our life operates that way. So no, that's exactly right. And honestly, it'd be a great time in our groups to just process with one another, uh, you know, with, with, with a candid uh, spirit of just saying, 
hey, yeah, I still I still default to not thinking Christ's work's finished. Like I still default to think I need to add things to it, and maybe even unpacking what are those things you try to add to what Jesus has already accomplished. Um, okay, so we mentioned the idea of supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ is superior to everything because he is God himself. The rest of chapter 1, uh, it, honestly, it's pretty odd because he unpacks this this idea that Jesus is superior to angels, which I've never struggled with that idea, nope. and I don't know anyone that has, but apparently in this context, there is either some level of angel worship going on or some uh, uh, elevation of angels to an improper place where they didn't belong, which isn't really our context. We could draw a lot of application out of that, of things we do elevate above Christ or where they shouldn't be. Uh, but really the rest of chapter 1, you get Old Testament quotes uh, where the author is proving to his people that angels are inferior to Jesus, not superior to Jesus. Would you have anything that you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, you see angels throughout the Old Testament. So obviously in the Jewish mind, that's a big thing. But you're going to, here's the tension that we wrestle with. And it's going to be hard sometimes to get in these next little bit is Jesus is superior to angels. And actually we in uh, eternity will be in a higher position than the angels. But here on earth, uh, living in this context, in this flesh, the angels um, are above. So it's it's this little bit, again, of attention of the reality we live in right now where angels are and yet where they'll be in the eternal. So uh, the fact that Christ is superior, I think in a Jewish mind, was something that they, like you said, wrestling with, they needed laid out. And he keeps going back to the Old Testament, which I love because it shows the continuity of Scripture, how Scripture is designed to point us. Old Testament, uh, we've heard this before, but someone's coming, continually pointing us forward to Christ, and that's the echo we hear throughout it. So here, even as it speaks of the angels, we see Christ is superior. They do, and just to your uh, point about even our human interaction or the way we relate to angels being different now than it will be one day ends a section verse 14 saying this of of angels are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve uh, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation which would be god's redeemed people throughout all time and there's a little bit of an interesting comfort there now we don't think about that third dimension very much in in america in, in western thought i mean everything is what i can see taste touch and feel and yet, the Bible continually brings into view the spiritual dimension and reality that it's not far-fetched to think some of us have, in unknown ways, been aided by an angel or protected or had some... And so, uh, while that uh, doesn't come to our minds as normal conversation, we certainly don't want to put that off to the side as if it's not biblically true. Yeah, and this verse 14, um, I remember, I guess, our, some of our older listeners may recall that angels were a rage within the Christian community at some point. Like everybody was angel books, angel things. It was just <laughs> angels. And um, Were you touched by an angel? <laughs> so much touched by an angel. Everything was angels. And really a lot of that led to misunderstanding of angels. But if, there's, if people talk about a guardian angel, which is an idea that's very, Scripture doesn't have any strong support of, this is the really the only place you can go is verse 14 to even begin to... Um, lean into that there, that could be something that is a reality. Again, we don't know for sure, but this right. verse 14 would be the one that people would would pull out if they're going to make that argument. Right. All right, Steve, we kind of move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And for our time here, it's probably best used if we unpack what I think are 
the two most confusing parts of chapter two. So you get the first warning passage in verses one through four. Then you get this really peculiar statement in verse 10 where he talks about being made perfect through suffering. So let's unpack those two uh, uh, here to kind of close off this week one podcast. So here we go. First warning passage where the debate can begin to rage. Can someone lose their salvation? Now, refer back to what we did in the introductory work uh, on this podcast and the field guide to navigate that. But here's what he says. He says, we must pay close attention to what we've heard. That's the gospel. Lest we drift away for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, already that's kind of a confusing line. Uh, Now, I'd love your insight on that. I take that verse two to be the Old Testament law uh, given to Moses, mediated through angels, and the author here saying, since that proved to be reliable, how much more so than these new covenant truths of the person of Christ will also prove to be even more reliable here. So kind of challenging them to say, hey, why would you, yet that Old Testament message is reliable and it points to Jesus. Yeah, I would take it that simple that it's, you know, the Old Testament's reliable, we can trust it, therefore uh, we can trust this message as well. And now here's the warning. So so uh, just to paraphrase, so even if if the old covenant, uh, if the law, if neglecting that, it says, came with just retribution, how then, verse 3, kind of shifting to our standpoint, shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us who heard uh, that God also bore witness by signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, distribute according to his will. So here's what I think the author's saying. He's saying, hey, just to update and paraphrase, uh, you not only heard the gospel, you witnessed the power of the gospel through signs, wonders, and miracles that you experienced. So he said, so it's been proven to you that it's true and it's powerful. Now, why would you leave it and neglect it to go back to the old system that points forward to this system anyways? And beyond that, if the old system came with a just retribution, how much more is the wrath and retribution towards those of us that taste the new covenant and reject and and walk away from it? Would you have more insight or a different way of phrasing that, Steve? Yeah. You know, I'm still caught on this word where he talks about lest we drift. You know, is he talking about for the believer, for the non-believer? Um, drifting is something that happens very easily for people. Um, the analogy that's stuck in my head the illustration is if you're trying to walk up a river you know and there's a stream coming it takes effort to walk you know it takes you you have to continually um, uh, put forth something and if you're going to stop walking up a river it still takes some effort to stand there in a river if you just kick up your feet you're drifting Hmm. and that's uh, Christ does all the work of salvation yet in our growth, transformation, we allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us and work on us. And if we just sort of kick up our feet, we're, we're actually end up in a drifting state. So for the believer, it's easy to drift. And I think we've all experienced that. We look up and um, we haven't been in that heartfelt communal relationship with the Lord. And we look up and, and realize that we're in a different place. Um, for the non-believer sometimes there's something that's caused them maybe to profess so this is a, a, a person maybe that's professed christ but yet they really haven't experienced conversion and then they look up and they, they've they've ended up in this place and that seems to be more what he's addressing here is that person who has at some point said they have experienced salvation but yet they've they've drifted 
from that. And he's asking, you know, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What other place is there to go than Christ? What other hope do you have? Where else can you go? And this question is meant to be answered. There's no place else to go. There's there's mm-hmm. no other hope uh, to go other than Christ. Yeah, and just to um, even take a look, maybe a slightly different angle on what you just said, too. It, let's, let's even take this as someone who... Uh, even is truly convinced they are a believer. Let's take your idea of drifting because I think your illustration of the stream is a really good one. And let's say he is writing this to people that maybe even uh, uh, he would think they seem to be a a, a believer in this situation. What you said is still true. If, If you do the drifting deal, as you perfectly illustrated, and that characterizes you as this apathetic drifter from now until the end of time, there is going to be no assurance that you actually do know the Lord, even if you keep professing him or not. And I think uh, we would do well to focus here on the warning for all of us. It's like, pay careful attention to, to Jamie. Steve, pay careful attention to Steve, because this is possible for all of us to turn into an apathetic drifter. Now, I think if you really know the Lord, you'll come out of that. You'll repent and be strengthened out of that. But uh, we're certainly none of us are immune to this to this reality and that's what he wants his people uh, to know here i think is is hey you quit worrying about everyone else and their salvation you pay attention to make sure you don't drift because if you're not drifting then you can walk along somebody else and help them and aid them in their temptation to drift but if you're not on firm ground uh, then you're not going to be much to the body of christ you're serving in anyways yeah and I, and I- even the picture, I think, is there's an ease with which we drift. It's not something um, we have to put any effort into. So for the person who has been in this state of, of drifting, um, I don't know that there is an assurance of salvation. Um, if they're if they're redeemed, they're gonna they will not live a lifestyle of continual drift. Now, what's hard is sometimes we try to measure that within a person or check that off or people will have family members that they'll start to get concerned about and say, Hey, my family member, you know, they, they go to church, they profess Christ, but that's, that's it. That's all I see. If you were to look at their life Monday through Saturday, nothing about their lifestyle would profess, um, really the two markers primarily that I think mark a Christian, um, is repentance. Meaning when you see your sin, you, of course you may all get defensive at first. We don't like seeing our sin, but there is a, an awakening to, I hate that sin, right. and I want to turn from it and go the other right. way. You'll, you will eventually get to that point. Exactly. That's, that's, to me, that's the, the most secure mark of a Christian. Uh, then fruit, and, I, and, and fruit comes in a couple ways. One, fruit of the Spirit that we're growing, and what it talks about in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that there is some semblance of... I think we have to be careful in ministry fruit because we want to start measuring these things, and that's really, really troublesome. But at the same time, a, a, des- a, a, a desire within us because of what we've experienced with Christ, I do want others to experience yes. that. And God's control that outcome, but like you said, that desire is kind of like a supernatural desire inside of you that would not be awake mm-hmm. if you didn't know the Lord. Um, I, I do love what Cole Huffman at uh, first of and says about grace is that and you mentioned this earlier about it takes work even to stand in the river 
mm-hmm. is that grace is is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And there is a reality where we, in concert, like you said, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are consciously wanting to put forth effort in our spiritual disciplines and loving the Lord and loving people and our evangelism uh, because intimacy with God comes through obedience and we're kind of in partnership in the sanctification. Like nobody just sits in their bedroom just saying, Spirit, sanctify me, and magically five years later you look more like Christ. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, there's this cooperative relationship happening where the Spirit empowers us and, and if we choose not to quench him or grieve him and we respond in obedience, then we're more and more formed into the likeness of Christ. Yeah, the, some of the people that I really glean the most from in life are these um, older saints who you see something in their life that draws you to them. And it, it's, it's sort of this intangible, but you know that there's something Christ-like in them. And when you start to talk with them, they've really been doing a lot of the basic things, time in the word. And, and connected with Christ. It's not this this legalistic, I do this, I do That's this, right. I do this. It's it's a, uh, uh, you can tell they love Jesus. And because they love him, they relate to him and they connect with him. They have a relationship with him. And that compounded over years is incredibly transformative. Yep. And might not per- be flashy. It might not be, you know, the super sexy Christianity but it, it sure seems to be biblical. Yeah, it's biblical, and it's um, sometimes we're drawn to, especially in our culture, quick, immediate, and walking with Christ and growing in Christ's likeness is there's seasons where it may things may happen fast, but the slow, steady growth of walking with Him over time. That's where the deep work's done, and that's where right. it, it deepens. So, And sadly, before we move on to our last point, uh, it, and I fall victim to this too, but I think we're always enamored with giftedness over godliness. Yeah. And so if someone is super gifted, they will draw our attention and our respect, and we'll admire that and, and want to be around them. But the just, like you said, the faithful saint who is godly but not flashy doesn't always get our attention in time. Yeah, and we're quick in the Christian community to lift up those who um, do something that we would see as uh, noteworthy, remarkable for the Lord. And Scripture in Thessalonians speaks of making it your ambition to live sort of a quiet, steady life. And there's something beautiful to that. And that should be uplifted as a a faithful, wonderful thing, is faithfully living your life for the Lord. And for me, I find as, as I get older, my ambition more and more becomes, can I be faithful to the Lord, walk with the Lord, be faithful to the things he's called me to, faithful to my wife, faithful to my family? And if I can do that to the end, uh, I think the Lord will take care of so many of these other yeah. things. Life well lived. Yeah. Okay, final point. Go to verse 10. And, and this is, in my opinion, if not the most confusing, it's one of the most confusing verses in the book of Hebrews. And if we take Revelation out, maybe the whole New Testament. And so here's what it says. Uh, to make it brief, it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, anytime you get to a really confusing passage, a principle that I think is really helpful is is you can use other scripture to at the very least tell you what it cannot mean. Mm-hmm. So if so, uh, it may not tell you what it does mean, but it can tell you what it can't mean. Now, just by the fact that early in this book, it told us that Jesus is God. God can only be perfect. 
So in no way is this verse, it can't possibly be saying that Jesus was imperfect in any way and had to be made perfect along the way. So we know it can't mean that by the very nature that he was God. Uh, I think much more likely, if we take the idea of being made perfect as the same language as being brought to completion, I think what's happening here, Steve, is that the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, uh, yes, Jesus was always God, but he had to come to earth as a human and his mission from God in, in the flesh as the God-man was made perfect or brought to completion through suffering. And so his work was not complete until the cross, yeah. until, until his death, his, uh, burial, and his resurrection. That suffering component had to happen, and that suffering was on behalf of all of God's people. So we don't need to get tripped up by this verse and say, oh, my goodness, it said Jesus was God over here, but this contradicts it because it says Jesus wasn't per No. It's saying the work he came to accomplish in the flesh had to be made perfect or brought to completion, which would not have happened had he not gone to the cross. Yeah, I think you bring up a a good point, uh, especially for people as we approach Scripture. Sometimes people will take one Scripture and really wrestle with it. And one of the things I've always heard is interpret the molehill in light of the mountain. When there's a mountain of Scripture saying something, uh, then you take the, the verse that you're going, this seems difficult. You interpret it in light of what you see, uh, the huge mountain glaring. And one of the mountains of Scripture is, in the New Testament, we see, again, Christ. He is divine. He is God incarnate. So I think we uh, there's we would be discounting almost the whole New Testament not to go that direction. But Christ is perfect. And as you said, his mission, his full obedience is what qualified him to be our perfect sacrifice. So part of his full obedience was his suffering. And he, Scripture says he despised the cross. It's not like he was, you know, that was something that was going to be a pleasant mm-hmm. experience. He was already perfect before he went there, but he endured it. Mm-hmm. And that suffering is what was required for the mission of being able to redeem sinful humanity, redeem us. That's so right. it is a difficult verse but i think when you start to unpack it with what we know from other scriptures and see that in in light of this one then it starts to come together that's right well hey it was great to be with you on week one steve uh i hope there's a blessing to all of you and look forward to y'all joining us again for week two of chapters three and four of hebrews 